All right, let's take out our Bibles and find Acts chapter 2 once again. And in this series on the church, um, for the last number of weeks, we're using Acts 2 as a springboard, not necessarily going through it verse by verse or explaining every part of this passage, but just the main idea that this is the beginning of what the Bible calls the church, the body of Christ. Here's where it is born on this day of Pentecost. This week, to get us started, I want to read verses 32 through verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Jesus, or, uh, Peter is preaching here, and he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. With many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word and were baptized. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on this message. Father, we come before you now and ask that in these next minutes as we obey your command in our worship service to publicly proclaim the Word of God to teach and to exhort that you would first of all gift me to do so in a way that is in keeping with what you would want me to do and what you would want me to say. And may it be true and from the Bible and edifying and helpful. I pray for everyone here as they listen that they would receive the word with meekness and that your spirit would work in them as well to hear and receive your word and see what they need to see and to apply it into their own lives, and then us as a church, Lord, to be able to think through who we are in this gift of the Holy Spirit that we have received in Christ Jesus. We ask this now in His name. Amen. 
the original disciples who were in that upper room in Acts chapter 2 received the promised Holy Spirit. And as an evidence of that, began to speak in foreign languages that were akin to the languages of the Jews that were gathered there for Pentecost who were spread out around the Roman Empire and had their own dialects. And they were able to preach and minister in those particular dialects. And of course, it caught the people's attention. And so they asked what was going on and Peter stood up and began to preach and explain to them what was happening. That Christ Jesus was rejected and crucified, but that He was raised again on the third day, exalted into heaven, and just as He promised, He received the Spirit from the Father, and the Spirit was poured out on His disciples. And then Peter says, if you repent, verse 38, and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for, or maybe better yet, on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise for everyone who believes in Jesus, repents and trusts in Christ, this promise of the Holy Spirit is for all who, all, it is for you, it is for your children, and for all who are far off. That's, by the way, us far away from those people in that place. The same promise comes down right down to this day. Repentance and faith results in the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in all of His people throughout this world. We talked about that last week and the fact that we have a Metaphorical analogy is what I'll call it. Those of you who were here last week maybe understand the reference to a metaphorical analogy of the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us as His people. What a powerful truth something that we need to ponder and think about on a consistent, regular, daily basis to remember that each one of us individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul said it, 1 Corinthians 6, challenging that congregation, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? And the church itself being built up as living stones into this temple or indwelt by the Spirit, we are the unique dwelling place of God in this world. We are the people who possess the indwelling presence of the triune God within each one of us, the Holy Spirit Himself. The church in Acts chapter 2 began in both the power And then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We are, of all people in this world, set apart uniquely by the Holy Spirit. Separated from the world, sanctified from the world, made holy and distinct and different from the world by the very presence of the Holy Spirit that they received there in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. 
We are to read Acts chapter 2 and say, the promised Spirit has come. This new age of the Spirit has arrived, and I am a possessor of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. He dwells within me as He did within them. The church is formed by the Holy Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, to be in the body of Christ, to actually be not just in it in the sense of you show up to church on Sundays or you're a member of this particular church or you serve or you're a Christian, a professing Christian, but to be a true member of the body of Christ requires that you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happens, by the way, at conversion, not some subsequent time, but when you believe. We're all baptized into the body of Christ. Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Everyone in Christ who is truly in Christ, all drank of the one spirit. All were baptized into one body by the spirit. And if you have not been, if you do not have the spirit of God in you, you do not belong to Christ. Paul says that very clearly in Romans chapter 8. If you don't have the spirit of Christ, you're not of Christ. And again, it doesn't matter if you come to church there are a lot of Christianized people in churches. They just are Christianized. But there are also many, sadly and fearfully, that have never been born again by His Spirit. Which means that everyone in this room should be, to some degree, asking yourself right now, do I have the Spirit of God in me? Because that is the difference between you spending your entire eternity apart from God or your entire eternity in His glorious presence. The indwelling presence of the Spirit is what makes a Christian Christian. He is what makes a Christian Christian. He is what makes the church the church. Without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, a group of people can call themselves the church, but they're nothing more than a group of people. It is this presence of the Holy Spirit that is required to be a true believer in Christ Jesus. Have you been born again? Jesus told Nicodemus, one of the most religious men of his day, the teacher of Israel, very knowledgeable about the Bible. He said, you have to be born again or you will not see or enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again by the Spirit of God, have you experienced a Pentecost of sorts? 
in which you were cut to the heart about your sin? And in response, you repented and you trusted in Christ and experienced the change within your heart and mind that only the Spirit of God can bring. Become born again a second time. The world looks different. You view things differently. Transformed. You live differently. Has that happened to you? I would not rest if you cannot for sure answer that in the affirmative. I would not rest until you settle that. Until you know you're truly a child of God. And it's actually the Spirit of God who must assure you of that. Remember, we walked through Romans 8, those of you who are here. Who is it that testifies with your spirit, your inner person, and tells you, you're a child of God. Who is it that witnesses to your spirit and says that? It's the Spirit of God Himself. He's the assuring presence in your heart. Make sure you can answer that question. If you can't, then you cry out to Jesus. He's the one that said, everyone who turns to me, believes in me, receives life, you see. Follow the instructions that Peter gives right here. Repent, believe in Jesus, and you will receive the promise, Holy Spirit. That's what he said. It's a promise. God is faithful to His promises. It was for them, it's for their children and grandchildren, and it's to all the world that hears the gospel. It's the same promise that goes out. So the church is by nature then a spiritual people, a spirit-filled people, a people in whom God dwells and transforms, makes holy, points to Jesus. The church is the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant people of God in this age comprised of both Jew and Gentile who believe in Jesus are indwelt by His Spirit. And you'll remember, friends, either from our previous messages or just in your own reading of Scripture, when God formed the nation of Israel, the big event for them, after, the, of course, they were rescued out of Egypt, was that He gathered them at Mount Sinai and He gave to them the law. Paul was referencing this earlier when we were reading, wasn't he, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that old covenant established with those people, that place and that time, the nation of Israel. And the heart of that covenant was engraved on two tablets of stone. We call them the Ten Commandments. We simply called them the Ten Words delivered by God to them, the heart of the covenant. And then, of course, it expands out to all of the rest that you read about in Exodus and Leviticus and partly in Numbers and other places, these Deuteronomy, these, these 
ceremonial laws and things that set them apart. But it was strikingly external. It was taken, written, and presented to them on tablets of stone. Just as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 3, God did that on purpose to show the distinction between the covenant that He made with those people in that time and in that place and the new covenant that we partake in, all believing Jews and Gentiles will take, partake in. Israel's big event was Mount Sinai that set them apart as God's holy people. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 27 verse 9 says this, Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. This day marks the beginning, ultimately, of this covenant that I make with you, the heart of which is engraved on these two tablets of stone that Moses is bringing to you. However, in a very dramatic distinction that is not designed by God's Holy Spirit in the Scriptures to escape your attention, the big event that now marked off the new covenant people of God, the church Christ promised, as His holy people in this world, was the giving and receiving of the Holy Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. This new covenant people of God have been formed now in and through Christ, and the distinguishing characteristic given to them was the Holy Spirit of God. It's just like Jeremiah said what happened. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, it is this engraving of the law of God on the hearts now of His people. Not an external focus, but an internal focus now in a transforming work and power that God does within His people that sets them apart as holy in this world. The old covenant came as tablets written on stone and they were to keep those commandments. But you're to read the Old Testament of your Bible and say, what a disaster was that. And it wasn't God's fault. 
His law is good and righteous and holy. It was their fault because they tried to keep the law without the interchange required by God's Spirit. As a matter of fact, law without the Spirit of God and the transformation He brings into the heart of an individual, law is actually dangerous. It's condemning. Matter of fact, Paul says, I would dare not to say it, except it comes right from the Bible, that what was happening there, Moses was ministering a ministry of condemnation. Because the letter, he said it, he said it, not me, he said it, the letter kills. Because sinners like you and me, by nature, without God changing our hearts, we can't keep God's law. It required transformation at the heart level, people becoming new, people being born again. And the only way that could happen is if the Spirit of God causes it to happen in our hearts. Now, is that not a dramatic distinction between Old and New Covenant? Which covenant would you like to be under? Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. Remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a, new, a, you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. And listen, <laughs> I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So our source of holiness then is the church, is not the external law. Now, let me pause and say this. The law is good and righteous and holy. And all Scripture, Paul said, is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. We look at God's law, and especially the moral law, didn't change because God didn't change in that way. We still don't bear false witness or commit adultery or worship idols, right? But there is a distinction now in our use of law, our focus on law, in our ability to obey the law and to live it out in our lives. It comes from within. We are the holy people of God set apart by the Holy Spirit. We are not a law-focused people in that sense where we are outwardly trying to conform to the law we are learning now to walk by the Spirit from within. And if we do that, if we learn to do that, we will fulfill the law. And we'll learn to not sin. Because if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Our source, our power of holiness is the spirit within. See, that was the problem with the law. The law has no power to transform your life. It has no power to transform your heart. That has to come from the spirit of God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 and 6. He said in verse 4, "Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another." 
to him who has been raised from the dead. We all know who that is. That's Jesus. For this purpose, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Then in verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code or the old way of the letter, just as he said in 2 Corinthians 3. We serve God as the church in a new way now. Not in the letter, but in the Spirit. So essentially then, it is the Spirit and not the law that sets the people apart as holy to the Lord. The church then is not a law-founded or law-focused people, but a Spirit-led people. John said of Jesus that uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And by that, he doesn't mean that no grace came from the law. The law itself was gracious. Revelation from God to his people is gracious. His instructions, his Torah, as they call it, is gracious. There were people in the Old Covenant era that were saved by grace through faith and the promise of God like Abraham, right? But in this new age, this grace of God, this outpouring in His working in power through His Spirit because of Jesus, and the hearts and minds of His people is new, and powerful, and should be exciting to us and invigorating to us. We are not a people who strive to outwardly conform to some standards or rules people who strive to please God from our hearts, the new hearts that have been changed, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then, in light, yes, enlightened by His words. Now, friends, my question is, what will that look like? What will that look like in the church to be this new covenant people of God and dwelt by His Spirit, a people of grace, meaning largely that it's the grace of God working in them, changing them, transforming them, giving them the ability to please God. What does that look like? Let me have you first turn to Galatians 5. If you take the time to read through Galatians 5, you'll find that this is Paul in battle royale against Jewish professing Christians who are trying to bring non-Jewish people under the law. They wanted to begin with the covenant sign given to Abraham of circumcision, which the Gentiles in that day and age would not have 
had, and so he wanted to bring them into that with that sign of the covenant. And then they wanted to bring them in under further regulations of the law. In other words, they just wanted to make the church Israel. They wanted to make Christian people, wherever they lived, Jewish in their practices. Paul is warning them against this type of thing. And the question would come up, well, Paul, if it's not law, then how are we supposed to live in a way that pleases God? If our focus isn't on law, how are we going to not sin? How are we going to live in a way every day that is bearing fruit to God? Because that is really the desire of, I'm sure, the true Jewish people of Paul's day that wanted to please God in their lives, wanted to bear fruit for God, just as he talked about back in Romans 7. We just read that. And so he says this in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The answer in how we're going to live in a way that pleases God, and first of all, by not sinning, not obeying those sinful desires we all have every day. We just confessed this morning together that, God, we all sinned against you this week. Our word, thoughts, and deeds, those desires we failed to suppress as we ought, those desires that Peter said, wage war against the soul. He says the answer to them is not law, it's spirit. We walk by the Spirit who provides the power of holiness in our lives. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, meaning the law's power and condemning work, because if you're under the law, remember, that's a bad place to be. And he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, I mean, we can know what it is to sin, these things are evident, says Paul. The works of the flesh are evident, like this, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, etc., right? Dot, dot, dot. The list can go on, but it's evident. It is evident to us what God considers sinful. Don't let the current culture and churches and Christians who are refusing to clearly identify what is evidently sinful, confuse you, especially in the first three, sexual immorality, that, that's all under the realm of sexual immorality and perversion, sexual immorality and uh, impurity and sensuality. The culture wants to confuse that. There are Christians that are saying, no, these things are now okay somehow. No, Paul says they're evident. It's not a game to be played. We don't cave into that. These are wrong. They're sinful. They have been from the beginning. We inherently know it in our own consciences. And not only that, we have the light of God's 
truth and law to show us that. But he said, these, the people that practice these things, I warned you as I warned you before, yes, keep warning them that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you were to take the, the works of the flesh that he says are evident, really that's a summarization of the vast majority of the Jewish people all under the old covenant era. What was predominant among them as a people? It was the works of the flesh. It was all of these things were prominent. That's why you can read some of those stories and you cringe. Some of them you're not sure if you should read to your children until a certain age. But in contrast to that, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit the Holy Spirit, His fruit, that is, what He produces in us that is going to be visible, like fruit is on a tree or on a branch. You see it. It's manifested. It's all a result of what happens from within. It wasn't placed on a tree. If you think about just a fruit tree, it's not placed on there from the outside. It's from within, in what's happening within, the Spirit produces the fruit in believers of things like this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Seeing if you walk by these things, there's no law against those. You're not breaking any of God's commands if you do these things. Think about just those first three for a moment. Defining characteristics then of the church, love and joy and peace. If the church is indwelt by the Spirit, the Spirit has transformed our hearts and the Spirit produces fruit in us in the church, what then should be the fruit of that? How about the top three? Love, joy, peace. Love for God, first and foremost, a zeal for Him, a a love for Him, an actual felt uh, enjoyment of God. Why? Because we love Him. We delight in Him. That should be there. Love for one another, one of the key markers of the people of God, that you love one another, Jesus said, as I have loved you, right? Or how about joy? This abiding joy that is permeating the life even when the circumstances are not joyful themselves. This kind of uncanny joy that a believer carries when they find out they've been diagnosed with stage 4 liver cancer. Where does that come from? The Spirit of God. And peace. Relational peace with God. Spirit produces that in you. He lets you know that, church, you are right with God. God's wrath has been turned away from you and put on Christ. And now when it comes to you and God... 
you're at peace. You stand in this position of peace with God. Paul says that the the love of the Father is poured out in the hearts of His people, assuring them, oh, you're children of God. God loves you. And peace with one another. Peace in the church. Jesus has brought peace through the cross, not just between God and man, but between us in the church. That there's no more hostility, there's no more division, because that would just be the works of the flesh, not the Spirit. The Spirit is bringing everybody together in the church in perfect peace. It should be noticeable to the world. If you have problems with somebody at church and that happens, whatever you do, don't talk about those problems with unbelievers. We're crying out loud what the one thing that's supposed to identify the people of God is the peace that the Spirit brings between the people of God. So reserve it, work through it with the person that you're having a problem with, but don't share it with unbelievers. They're supposed to see peace within the people of God. And then the situational peace, Paul talks about it in Philippians 4. It's like this peace that surpasses understanding. He produces that in you. As you pray, as you trust Him, as you cast all your cares upon Him, He produces within you this peace and actually sets a guard around your heart and mind so that nothing can infiltrate. The peace, the heart stays calm. These are the works of the Spirit. These are the things that we should see in producing in the church. This is how you identify a people who are changed by the Spirit and transformed by the Spirit and learning to walk in the Spirit. We're a spiritual community and it should look like this. And let me show you one more as we bring this to a conclusion. Ephesians chapter 5. Just go to the book to your right. Galatians and Ephesians. What does a Spirit-filled church look like? What are the results of the Spirit in us? Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. This is Ephesians 5.15. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Here's the contrast to that, but be filled with the Spirit. Most literally, be being filled with the Spirit, because you already have Him. And in contrast to being drunk, it means the Spirit's controlling, leading, and guiding You've never been intoxicated with alcohol, you might not understand, but when you are, it has a controlling influence over your mind, your direction, your actions to the extent that sometimes you could wake up the next day and say, I can't believe what I did. He says in contrast to that, You be being filled with the Spirit. He's the controlling influence in your heart and mind. 
What does that look like in one, one application to that? Just one verse 19. Look at this. It's a worship service with your church. Spirit-filled people. That's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. And then there are these modifying participles, wonderful grammar. Modify being filled with the Spirit and show you what it looks like in the context of the church. Listen, addressing one another or speaking, being audible to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What do Spirit-filled people do? They get together and they sing all kinds of songs. So, when we're here and we're singing, you should be singing unless you have something, a physical ailment, which is possible, you sing. That's being filled with the Spirit. It's what it looks like. It, it escapes out of you. And God has given us this music that we can sing together and speak it audibly. That's what the word addressing means. To say something audibly, to be speaking, that people can hear you. And we're addressing one another. We're hearing each other. We're singing in one sense to one another because the joy of the Lord is in our hearts. And as we look at the lyrics on the screen or in a hymn book or whatever kind of tradition you're in, you're looking at those and you're like, this is truth. And the Spirit is encouraging you in it and it's coming out of you, you see. And then you're making melody, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. See, it's sincere. It's not just because Pastor Jess said, I got to sing. It's because it's to the Lord. You don't even care about Pastor Jess in that moment. Who cares about Pastor Jess and what he thinks? The Lord my Lord, the one who gave Himself for me, the one who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for me, loves me, dwells in me by His Spirit, has given me eternal life, that one is the one I sing to, you see. And we're a thankful people always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're submitting to one another in humility, no one above the other, out of reverence for Christ. It's just this beautiful picture of the church gathered, isn't it? I've told you, I started this entire series explaining what the church is, the, the assembly of called out, gathered people for a purpose. What is that purpose? To worship our Lord and we're doing that together. And I said, we are being most the church when we're gathered doing it. You see that? We're being most the church. We're, we're being filled with the Spirit the most when we're gathered on Sunday mornings and we're singing and praising the Lord together. And friends, if you analyze your life and you're not seeing the fruit of the Spirit in certain ways... You don't want to take anything I've taught this morning and, and write it on tablets of stone and say, okay, now i got to do that. What you do is what Jesus commands us in John 15, 7 and 8. And I'll put this up and this will be, I will close this. That's the very last one I think. Yeah, there we go. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. We've looked at a lot of his words this morning. 
ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, by the fact that you looked into the Word, you saw what the Spirit has to produce in you because you don't have it, or you're battling this, and you say, Father, in the name of Jesus now, and by your Spirit, produce these things in me. It will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. What? That you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. It's like God wants to answer that prayer. He wants His people to see what's what's supposed to be there at times and is not, or what is and needs to be strengthened, and He wants you to pray these words back to Him. By Your Spirit, God, bear this fruit in me. And the Father says, in the name of Jesus, yes, I do that, because Your fruit-bearing and display of true discipleship brings me ultimate glory. These are the very words of our God. We can trust what He says. Let's go before Him now in prayer. Oh, Father, we confess again that throughout this week we have not walked by the Spirit in all our moments. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for forgiveness through Him. What we're about to partake in, the remembrance of His death that reminds us of His forgiveness and His grace. We praise You for that. We thank You. And yet we also ask that we can bear His fruit in our lives this week so that You are glorified. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.